Revelation 13. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that even he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding... Calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we might have hope, that we might have clarity and understanding as to your will, your purposes in life. But especially in these uh, passages uh, that that are so full of symbolic imagery, Lord, we we need help. We want to, to rightly interpret them, and the tendency to wrongly interpret is strong. And so I pray that you would give us uh, clear minds, clear thinking, uh, and a good just a ability to discern so that we'd have our correct understanding of what your intent is 
for us to understand from this passage and even its implications upon us immediately. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, even as I prayed, and as you guys well know, there's a lot of symbolic imagery in this chapter. And in order to rightly interpret this imagery, we should be aware of the, the two primary common errors committed when interpreting biblical prophecy. And the, the first error is to assume that the, that the event being symbolically described has already taken place. Now, it may be that an event that's being described in a prophecy actually has taken place. Um, many prophecies, as we know, have been fulfilled. But we can know with certainty when a prophecy has been fulfilled because it's obvious. In fact, almost every interpreter who will look at prophecies, fulfilled prophecies, recognize these are, this happened in, at this time in history or at this moment in Israel's history as explained in the scripture. I think the most obvious example of this is Isaiah 53. You read Isaiah 53, and it's a clear depiction of the crucifixion of Christ. I mean, it it, it shouts off the pages. And we can see how it was literally fulfilled, although that passage is full of symbolic imagery. But we can, because the event has taken place, we can see how all those symbols are appropriate to describe the event that took place. Another example is Joseph's dreams in Genesis 37, the the dreams of the sheaves that all bowed down to Joseph's sheave, or even of the sun, moon, and stars, and the 11 11 stars that all bowed down to Joseph. And even, remarkably, his family members knew exactly what was implied in in those dreams, Um, even though they understood it, they, they still reluctantly participated in how it came to advance. They did bring about even the fulfillment. They would bow down to Joseph when he became the vizier of Egypt. But more importantly, no Bible interpreters disagree as to the meaning of the symbolism in those passages. Because we can see how it wasn't literal sheaves that bowed down, but actually it was Joseph's brothers. It was his mother and his father uh, that, that honored that came to uh, that came to Egypt and submitted to his authority eventually, and that became obvious to be when the prophecy was fulfilled. The same could be said about the uh, prophecy of the cup baker. Uh, the cup baker had his dream, and so did the sorry, the cup baker, the cup bearer, and the baker. Let's <laughs> just combine those. Um, it literally fulfilled. Kind of a bizarre dream, but then when you realize what happened, when Job explains it and it's fulfilled, it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Same thing with the dream of the sleek cows and the fat cows. It was a fulfillment. It was fulfilled with the famine that took place, the seven years of famine and the seven years of plenty that preceded it. Now, if we had no record of those events taking place, I mean, you could imagine the bizarre interpretations that people would come up with. Well, a cow, you know, it's you know, that, that symbolizes, you know, I don't know what they'd say. Can't be that creative. But, but, it, but it, it's, it's confusing at first. It doesn't seem to make sense. But then when the event does take place, it's like, oh, and then everybody can recognize it. Well, the same is true with prophecies in Scripture. Um, not just in Genesis, but in Daniel's four prophecies of the beasts. Right? The, the four beasts. You had the... Um, 
the leopard and the bear and then, of course, the lion that preceded them. And few Bible scholars disagree that these refer to the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then later on, uh, Rome. And so they don't disagree with this interpretation because that's what happened. We can look back and see very clearly that that's what happened in history. So this we, when it comes to symbolic imagery, when we people struggle to understand exactly what's being conveyed, the chances are the reason for that is it hasn't happened yet. But when it does happen, it will be obvious and we will recognize it. it these you don't have to stretch the leopard referring to Greece or the, the lion referring to Babylon or the bear Medo-Persia because it becomes obvious in the course of history. And I think the same is true, will be true when these events described in Revelation 13 take place. So that's one error, is to assume that if something's described, it's already taken place, we just have to identify what it was. The second common error in interpreting symbolic prophecies, though, is assuming that what's being described is presently taking place. And this happens when people will uh, read this symbolic imagery into the events in a newspaper. Or what's going on on the internet. And so they'll try to identify, for instance, who is the beast that's being described here. It's as if um, somebody presently uh, this is describing. And so when, in doing such things, uh, people are bound to err. So one critical hermeneutical rule we should keep in mind in interpreting symbolic prophecy is the, that God wants this passage to be understood. In fact, that's why we have Scripture. Uh, this is called the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. God gives us Scripture, first of all, so that we would know His will and, uh, and so that we would know Him. He gives us to us that we might have this information for a reason. And so He wants us to understand it. And this is why many people assume the original readers would have known who's being described here. Like Joseph's family, they could tell what the dream was pointing to, what a certain symbol signified. And this would be the case unless such an event that is being prophesied would take place hundreds of years later. Hundreds of years later, they would have no categories for understanding what would be described. And so symbolism would be the only way to convey it in prophecy. But in time, those who, when after those events do take place, it would be understandable. Now, certainly nobody expected that the Podunk city of Rome uh, would come to become a would become a, a worldwide power when Daniel prophesied uh, that Rome would be the fourth beast. Nobody would have expected that. Rome wasn't that powerful during Daniel's time. No, it eventually would be. But again, after the course of hundreds of years, these things again become more clear. They can take place. So the bottom line is that we can have very strong certainty that if we're confused as to the significance of a symbol, it's probably because it hasn't happened yet. So, why should we study such things? Well, essentially, for the same reason we would study any passage of the Scripture. So that we would know God, and we'd understand how He wants us to live. But let me speak directly on how prophecies of the future accomplish this. So, three points. First of all, we can have confidence in God's sovereign purpose when we see him declare his plan and then that plan come to fulfillment. 
so when dreadful things take place, we can know that this is in accordance with his design. That, that, that there's not some plan that's gone haywire or some person that's gone rogue outside of God's power and authority. And that he's panicked, worried about how things are going to end up. And God tells us how things are going to happen, even dark, awful things, precisely so that when they take place, we will know that God is sovereign over this. He's controlling it. He's directing it. And so the response will not be, well, we then just got to solve the problem on our own. No, we can know. We can trust the Lord. He's designed this. Our job is to trust him and obey him. It's not to necessarily fix the problem on our own. And we can clearly see this in the life of Joseph. Right? And his, his dreams served to give assurance that everything that happened to him in his life, as awful as it was, was not without purpose. Right? That's how it, the story, the great story concludes. When Joseph says very clearly to his brothers, you meant it for evil. And it was a great evil. They wanted to kill him. They, they, they made him a slave. Their own brother. And Joseph could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Not just for me, but so that I could preserve many people, especially our own family. And so we, God gives us this information so that when bad things happen to us or to Israel or whatever's being described in a prophecy, we don't have to panic. And we can know we have a sovereign God who is directing even these awful things for good. So prophetic passages affirm the trustworthiness of God. They prove his sovereign power. And so they can be a, an incredible comfort to us when it does seem like things are out of control or just there's a, there's a, a dark cloud hiding the purpose of God. Secondly, we can study these prophecies because when they do take place, we're not going to be surprised. And therefore, we will respond rightly to God's warnings and judgments, right? This was this is why Jesus explained what the end time, what would happen in the end times in his Olivet discourse, in Mark uh, 13 and Matthew, he's 25. He explains what's going to happen to Israel, and he says, therefore, when these things take place, be warned, <laughs> flee Jerusalem when the abomination of death. Know how to rightly respond when it does happen. Now it still hasn't happened yet, so. It's for people still in the future that but when it does happen, they will know what they should be doing. They will flee. And the same is true of the seven seals, the seven trumpet judgments. When these things take place, God wants us to take warning, especially for those who, don't, who aren't believers, that they would repent. And they would understand that God's wrath is upon them. God wants people to rightly respond to uh, his warnings. <clears throat> Thirdly, this is kind of a combination of the previous two points. We should study these prophecies, these symbolic prophecies, so that we will respond rightly when the events described takes place. Right? This is what gave Jesus confidence to go to the cross. Like, even though his own, one of his closest friends would betray him, uh, his father essentially would abandon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be tortured. But he knew it was being, whatever, whatever God had designed, he had designed for a good purpose. And so he set his face like flint and he went through it and he didn't sin. 
because he knew God's good purpose in the suffering. And that's why he could stand silent like a lamb led to slaughter. And the Apostle Peter likewise informs us in 1 Peter 2. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we can learn from Christ's example. If, we're, if we know what God's plan for the future is, and we know it's dark and it's going to be bad, in knowing it, we can prepare ourselves so if it does take place in our lifetime, we won't be shocked. And we can honor God in that hour. So what is the symbolic imagery in this chapter about these beasts? What does it teach us? Well, it, it describes the person and kingdom of a coming ruthless world ruler commonly known as the Antichrist or depicted here as the beast. And it describes the ascendancy of his public relations officer and false prophet depicted here as a second beast. And again, this information is given to us so that we will know when they arise and we'll know they're bad and we won't panic, but know their evil rule, their evil intent, is all according to God's plan. right? So this is not given to us to identify them and then we can know when we need to stock up on ammunition and overthrow the government. No, this is given to us so that we know when it does happen, we can submit like Christ and entrust our souls to a loving and faithful creator. Right? This is not telling us what we need to do to, to keep it from happening, but the fact is we can't keep it from happening. But what we need to guard is not our lives. We need to guard our souls. In fact, we need to be ready to give up our lives, knowing that that's what's destined. And we'll get into that. That will become clear as we look at this chapter. Pretty simple outline. You have the description of the first beast. Then it describes his, what I call, devilry. His evil actions and intent. And then the same thing for the second beast. His description and his devilry. All right, let's look at the first Beast's description in verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> so this section actually, you'll notice, really begins with the last verse of the previous chapter. In fact, many Bibles actually take the last verse and add it on to the first verse. Um, like the NAS does that. I think the ESV does it as well. And that's because it's really described, it really should be part of chapter 13, this description of the beast. Where it says, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Well, the sea really is symbolic of the realm of Satan. It's his dominion. And again, it's symbolic. It doesn't mean there's, you know, Navy guys or, you know, servants of Satan or the mariners. Uh, it's, it's, it's a symbolic depiction of where Satan, what Satan rules. It's often um, describes the world as the sea or the realm of chaos. And so the point here is that the dragon... Satan is empowering the coming beast or the Antichrist that's going to come out of the sea. So he's waiting for it. He's anticipating it. And then the beast is described. The dragon's servant. He has ten horns, seven heads. His horns have ten diadems and there's blasphemous names on the heads. Uh, that word beast 
therion, it really refers to any living creature that's non-human. But you think, well, but the Antichrist is a man. Right? He, and we know he's a man. He's described as his name, right? The very last verse, it's the number of a man, right? In verse 18, but also in First Thessalonians, described as the man of lawlessness. So he, he is a man, but he's being symbolically depicted as a beast to, dump, to demonstrate that his actions are utterly inhumane. He lacks humanity. He's so vicious, so cruel. He is so given over to his lust for power that he lacks humanity. He won't let anything withstand his lust for power. According to 1712, the ten horns he possesses represent ten kings who give their hand of uh, their hand, they hand over their power to the beast. If you look at 1712, just a couple pages later, it says, "In the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So these would be contemporary rulers with this coming antichrist. He ascends to power and." Ten of the other rulers at the time will hand their power over to him, and he will have absolute power over the world. And we're not told why they will do this. It could be they have a common enemy. It could be that they're coerced. But for whatever reason, they yield their power to the beast. And this actually follows the imagery and interpretation given in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, if you want to look there, it's verses 24 and 25, it says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. And then he shall speak words against the Most High. That's referring to God. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. Very similar description is that given in Revelation 13. If you go back to Revelation 17, verse 9, we give the, we're given the interpretation of the seven heads. We're told that they represent seven mountains on which the woman who represents false religion sits. So this calls for a mind of wisdom. This is 17, 9 and 10. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Five of whom have fallen, one is, the other is not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And quite likely this is referring to Rome. But you'll notice verse 17, uh, 17.10 says that they also represent seven kings. right? Five who have already died, it says, and presumably that's at the time of John's writing, and one who presently reigns. So presumably the current Roman emperor at that time. And then there's going to be one more. And this is probably the Antichrist or the beast that's described here in chapter 13. So the seven heads could refer to six consecutive emperors of Rome. Um, or they even or represent six consecutive empires and then the final world empire. And I think the second interpretation would allow for the dual symbolism of the heads representing both Rome's seven hills and then also it's being the sixth empire that was prophesied, right? Egypt, Assyria, 
Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then a revived Rome at the end of time. So I think that's what's being described here, is a revived Rome. Basically, a worldwide power based in some European nation, possibly even the United States, as a colony of Europe initially. We're also told that he has blasphemous names on his head. Uh, The ten horns possess ten crowns. The seven heads possess blasphemous names. Uh, The Greek text could also read that that they have one blasphemous name on all seven heads. So it could go either way. But the point is, is this this, uh, beast is going to be defined by his blasphemous speech and his arrogance. And that comes up multiple times in this chapter and then in other texts as well on the Antichrist. He's defined by his blasphemy. Uh, Daniel 7.25 says, He shall speak words against the Most High. We read that earlier. In fact, he'll rail against the one true God and eventually demand worship of himself. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.4 It says he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so he takes his seat in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. So he really is the Antichrist. A false Christ, a false Messiah. And he will proclaim himself to be the true Messiah. Though what he says will be counter to everything we see in Scripture. He will speak as Satan would have him speak. This brings us to the... uh, um, well, actually, I would just want to point out to verse 2. It says, The beast is described as being a leopard with the feet of a bear and a mouth of a lion. The same three, three of the, those three, those three are <laughs> the three kingdoms that are described in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Uh, again, the leopard representing Greece, the bear, Medo Persia, the lion, Babylon. And it seems that the significance of mentioning them is, again, to signal that the Antichrist is now the fourth beast that was prophesied. Again, representing a revived Roman Empire. So I think it's really a tip of the hat or like a wink for Bible students to go back to Daniel to get help in further clarification of what's being described here. It's building off of what has already been revealed in Daniel, is the point. Same man. Let's get in now to the the work of the first beast, his devilry. It says in verse 2 that the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And this is significant. I mean, just think about this. This man will have Satan's power pulsing through him. Satan, of course, described as the prince of the power of the air. And this is why most scholars assume he will be possessed either by a demon or Satan himself. But even so, he's mortal. And we know that because it says in verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. It was a fatal wound. In other words, he died, but he was revived. And that's why the whole earth, it says then, is amazed and follows after the beast. Right? In verse 14, it says, he was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Right? So, he's somehow revived. He was killed, but he's revived in response to survival. 
the world's driven to worship him. And this is largely due to the influence of the second beast, which we'll look at in a minute. But quite likely, the reason for this fatal wound really is to deceive the world as to his identity. Again, he's trying to be a false messiah. If he dies and is revived, it gives some credence to the fact that he was the prophesied messiah of Isaiah 53. Obviously, he won't be. But his death and resurrection is a parody of Christ. But unlike Jesus, this Antichrist will declare that he is the one truly worthy of worship and that Jesus was a fraud and a weakling. Verse 4 says, They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And unlike the Messiah who came to earth uh, to lay his life down, this false Messiah will be a warrior who has no, no qualms about slaughtering many people. The question, who is like the beast, is really the same rhetorical question that's asked of Yahweh many times in the Bible. That same question comes up multiple times. For instance, Isaiah 40, to whom will... You liken God, or what likeness will you compare him? A few verses later, in verse 25, Isaiah 40, 25, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Psalm 113, verse 5, Who is like Yahweh our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? The point is, there's nobody like it. It's a rhetorical question. And so when they say this, they're suggesting there is no other higher being than the beast. They proclaim him to be God, essentially. And they'll be convinced that his power and authority are impregnable. And and they'll not just worship the beast, they'll even worship the dragon because he gives his power and authority to the beast. So people are going to fully buy into satanic worship. There will be one world religion and it'll be the worship of Satan. For real. And it won't go well for the saints. But all this is in accord with God's plan, as we see in the next two verses. We're told in verse 5 that he will be given authority to rule for 42 months. That same time period that gets repeated, three and a half years. Now, the question is, who gives him this authority to rule for three and a half years? Well, we are told that he receives his power from Satan, But we can also know that Satan's not going to limit his power. He's certainly not going to limit it to just three and a half years. Satan would have him rule forever. So who limits him? Who gives him this authority and also limits it at the same time? That's right. The sovereign God. God is the one that's allowing him to rule that long and only for that long. But we need to recognize that. Just like it says in Romans 13, God appoints our rulers. God has a design for the Antichrist. And God will make sure that the Antichrist accomplishes his purpose of pouring out wrath on the world. Of deceiving the nations. It's part of God's design. It's not something for us to fight against. It's for us to trust God in. And it will appear that Satan is conquering the church. Because that's what he's going to do. He's going to seek to overcome the saints. 
However, how will the saints actually overcome Satan as Satan overcomes them? How do the saints conquer when it appears that Satan is, or the beast is conquering them? We saw it in the last chapter. By not loving their lives even unto death. You see, it's going to look like Satan's conquering, but he, we'll, he won't conquer because we're not going to let him. How will we not let him conquer? By being ready to die. That's how we win. Not by taking up arms, not by protesting the streets, not by wallowing in self-pity, but saying, here's my life. Let it go. It belongs to the Lord. I will not deny him. We have, and, and the point is, be ready for that. That's how we win. That's how we conquer, even if it looks like we're being conquered. Even as Christ conquered Satan the same way. Christ achieved victory over Satan by going to the cross. And he, he looked weak. He looked pathetic. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. His closest friends fled from him. He was isolated and alone. But he won because he submitted himself wholly to God. He trusted God's plan, trusted God's purpose. And likewise, we too, Revelation twelve eleven, will conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And a similar thing is said in Revelation fifteen two. And it will be very clear during this time, therefore, who truly follows Christ. Those who are willing to let their lives go. And this brings us to the central application of the text. And really, I think, the central application to the whole of the book of Revelation. And when you want to know, what, what's, what is the implication of Revelation for me right now? We're given this in verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance in the faith of the saints. Right, that, that phrase, if anyone has an ear, let him hear, it echoes back to the exhortation in the, in the letters to the seven churches. The final exhortation, when, he, when Jesus says, things are going to be bad, but if you have an ear, hear what I'm saying. Endure. Cling to Cling to the promises. Well, and here he's saying this is the promise. That those whom God has foreordained, predestined to be incarcerated, are going to be incarcerated. There's nothing you can do about it. Those who are preordained to be slaughtered, martyred, will be slaughtered. Now, that word captivity could refer to going to jail Probably refers to being kidnapped, uh, possibly even sold into slavery. In fact, I actually think that's most likely what's being referred to. It's kidnapping and slavery because we know during the Antichrist rule, uh, slavery will be a major industry. See this in verse 16, it's mentioned. Later on, 1813 and 1918 also. So the slaves have to come from somewhere. What would make most sense if the whole world worships Satan? <laughs> Who would be the best person, the best people to enslave? Instead of killing the Christians, let's enslave them and make them do our bidding. 
Others will be killed with the sword. The sword's metaphorical of a violent death. So it's not going to be COVID that kills us. And and such deaths aren't going to be limited to swords. It could be any sort of violent death. It's just symbolic of a violent death. The point is that Christians are going to be slaughtered. And what we need to recognize is this is all according to plan. God's already determined who's going to get jail time, who's going to be sold as a slave, who's going to be slaughtered. And Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you as sheep out in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Those exhortations come up a lot in Daniel, come up here. Be wise and be innocent. Same thing in 1 Peter. Be wise, discern God's will, and don't, be, don't, don't, don't fret when you're punished unless you've done something being worthy of being punished. Be innocent, but be wise. Know God's plan, know God's will, but be innocent. Peter says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, this is 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh is seed from sin. So as to live the rest of the life in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is, this is what, this is the application of Revelation. Prepare yourself to let go. Prepare yourself to die. Right? Like Jesus. He says, right? Because Christ suffered in the flesh. Like Jesus, when the time comes for us to be imprisoned or executed, we can't ask the Lord, Lord, take this cup from me. But if the Lord, if it's the Lord's will, we also need to say, your will be done, not mine. And so we shouldn't try to avoid it. And we should also know it's not without purpose. It's not aimless. Your life will not be a waste, even if it's a humiliating death. In fact, to give your life up for Christ, or even to be sold into slavery, be separated permanently from your family, that might be what leads to the greatest, Really, it really could be the greatest honor he calls us to. For like Christ, right, because he didn't love his life, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he's Lord. Because he was willing to trust the Lord. And likewise, the greatest thing we can do for Christ is be willing to submit to great suffering on account of him. Right? That's, what, that's what the greatest Christians are going to look like. It's not those who make a name for themselves that everybody just thinks is lovely. It's those who love Christ more than anything. And so how do we prepare for that? Jonathan Edwards gives some good advice. He said in one of his resolutions, whenever I feel pain, I'm resolved to think of the pains of martyrdom or of hell. And his point there is whenever he feels, and any time the Lord sovereignly allows him to feel pain, whether it's emotional or physical pain, it would alert him to the fact that this is just preparation. Right? One, he's not going to hell. Reminds him that there are people suffering right now in hell, and that's not what he's going through. His pain is minor compared to what he deserves. But also to prepare him for the pains of martyrdom. And likewise for us, any time we feel pain, emotional, physical, however, we can be, again, it's training. 
We need to train ourselves not to be led by flesh and by comfort and by glory, but be ready to let it go at a moment's notice. And if, if that's our heart, if we have trained ourselves to be losers, so to speak, when, we, when, we're, when it's taken away from us, we'll be ready for it. And such will be the most glorious life one could imagine for a Christian. Because they'll be following Christ. And of course, this is, we know this is what it means, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is what we're called to. So this is how we can prepare ourselves. This brings us to the description of the second beast. The first thing we're told about the second beast is that he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. And the lamb in Revelation always represents Jesus and the dragon, of course, we see in chapter 12 represents Satan. So this is a man who looks like Jesus and people probably would think he, he is the Messiah. But he speaks just filth from his mouth, blasphemy. Everything that comes out of his mouth is satanic. And he'll fool people into thinking he represents the true God. But his whole aim is to promote the worship of the first beast, of the Antichrist. This is made clear in verses 12 through 18. The devilry of the first beast. The second beast will, will serve really as a right-hand man to the first beast. I like to think of him as a religious public relations officer. So he's not only going to promote the work of the Antichrist, but he's going to promote his worship. And, he, and we, we're told here he promotes the worship of the Antichrist by performing miraculous signs. Notice what kind of signs he performs. Fire coming down from heaven. Who else called down fire from heaven? Elijah, and then later Elijah. Yeah. Now what's significant about Elijah? According to Malachi. He would proclaim the coming of the Messiah. Now course we recognize that's referring to john the baptist who proclaimed the coming of the messiah jesus made that clear but it's to this day many jews still look forward anticipate the coming of elijah who will precede the messiah because of the book of malachi so they actually anticipate this in every seder or passover meal that's celebrated and so it would make sense that he would then want to parody the true Elijah, and then he could proclaim that he is the forerunner of the Messiah who is actually going to be the Antichrist. In verse 14, we're told that he will convince people to make an idol of the beast as an object of worship. And actually, this, this second beast, this false prophet, will enable the idol to come alive and speak. And we're not told how he is able to give life to the idol, it could be through some supernatural demonic power. It could be some sort of artificial intelligence. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But what is significant is what the living idol says. And we're not giving it word for word. But it uses its speech to demand that those who fail to worship him should be killed. Like asking, asking the idol, what, what should I do today? And he says... Go kill a Christian. That's going to be the this idol's 
will. Verse 15, it was given him to give breath to the image of the beast so the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And the other thing the second beast will do for this first beast is require every person on the earth to receive a mark signifying their loyalty or worship of the first beast, the Antichrist. And if a person fails to get this mark, they'll be prevented from buying and selling goods. Now, in previous generations, <clears throat> this would have seemed like a stretch. How would one person ever gain control of, of the total marketplace? Well, with the advent of the Internet and companies like Apple and Amazon and such, uh, such control, it seems feasible. If a person could gain control over those things. Especially in the wake of a massive world war, which is what will bring in the power of the Antichrist. This brings us to the identity of the beast in verse 18. And this is arguably the, the most well-known part of the book of Revelation. It says in verse 18, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number that is, uh, is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, the call for wisdom here may seem like a, a slap in the face to us. Uh, if you can't identify the, who the beast is, then you're a fool. Right? You need wisdom. Or in contrast, it could be a temptation of pride. that The way that I can prove that I'm a really wise person is I can identify who the beast is before anybody else. But the call to wisdom here actually harkens back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Really, which is the theme of Daniel. The purpose of Daniel is to instruct, particularly the Jews, how they could live wisely under the rule of pagan Gentile rulers. Instruction on how to live in a way that would honor God when, it's, when the rulers above you, you're at their mercy. And they hate your religion. So, wisdom, biblical wisdom, is basically just knowing God's will. Knowing who God is and knowing what will please Him. So, the call for wisdom is study Scripture and apply it rightly. Right? We, wise people apply the wisdom God gives by faithfully trusting Him and then seeking to turn others to righteousness. Right? Just as Jan, Daniel tried to do. And this is how Daniel closes. Those who are wise shall shine, those who are wise, note, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The call for wisdom here is be ready to live a godly life in the midst of great suffering. Know, God, know, know that all of this is happening according to plan. Be like Daniel. Follow Daniel's example. Daniel was ready to go to the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ready to go to the fiery furnace. And we can see God had a plan and a purpose in all of it. He preserved Daniel, but he might not preserve us. He may, but he might not. We certainly know many will lose their lives during this time. Okay, so that's what the wisdom, call to wisdom is speaking to. So who is the Antichrist? And who is the second beast? Well, the reality is we don't know. Sorry. 
Because the reason we don't know is because he hasn't come. But given this description, the point is we should know him when he does come. We have a pretty thorough description about how we will act, how we will function. It won't be a surprise. We're not going to... We're not going to be hoodwinked if we're paying attention to Scripture and we're anticipating the truthfulness of God's Word to to eventually come to fulfillment. It could be in our generation, but it could be multiple generations from now. We're not given the time period. But what we do know is how we should rightly respond when He is revealed. If we have taken God's instruction here in Revelation seriously we'll know how we should respond to his threats. We'll overcome him. We'll conquer him by not loving our lives even unto death. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to talk about these things when we still have freedom of religion, when even most people around us have some sense of humanity and compassion. Lord, when our lives are really not in danger, it's easy to talk about. But none of us know how we will respond when such threats become a reality. If it's your will for them to become a reality in our life. But Lord, I pray that you would help us now to learn to let go of a life anticipating comfort and pleasure. Lord, that we would learn... Learn to yield our lives up solely to you, appreciating what you do give, delighting in what you do give us, because you do give us everything to enjoy. You tell us that in First Timothy. But at the same time, always being willing to let it go at a moment's notice, trusting you and your sovereign purposes. So train us, Lord. Train us to be such Christians who love you more than anything that this life offers. We pray these things in Christ's name.